0: And welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Ussery, and I'm happy to welcome Jake S. Friedman to the program today. Jake is a former animator, current educator, and a researcher and writer about the history of animation. His first book was The Art of Blue Sky Studios, and today is the second part of a two-part interview about his new book, The Disney Revolt, The Great Labor War of Animation's Golden Age, which is published by Chicago Review Press. Since we're dealing with labor actions from the first half of the 20th century, it seems organized crime has its role to play in the story. Can you tell us who Willie Bioff is and what Ayatsi is?
1: Okay, so this is a Disney book, right? But as far as I know, and I've read a lot of books about Disney, this is the only book that has like a mafia mobster in it. So Funnily enough, the guy who was trying to take over all of Hollywood's unions at the time, like basically create like a monopoly of unions, his name was Willie Bioff. He was a Capone mobster. And his idea was to get enough people in any craft, like projectionists, signed up under him as their union representative. And then he would threaten the studio head to take them out on strike. If the studio head didn't give them what he wanted and also, you know, slip Willie Byoff a few hundred thousand dollars, not adjusted for inflation. Like this is like hundreds of thousands of dollars in 1938. So Willie Byhoff became this like baron of blackmail uh, or bribery, I should say. Willie Byhoff became a baron of union bribery in the 1930s, a racketeer. But there was no way to catch him. They couldn't pin him for anything, just like they couldn't pin Al Capone on anything except Finally, when they got to Capone's taxes, right? So what eventually got Willie Bioff was his taxes. But Willie Bioff was, and I'm not joking that his name was was
0: Bioff. It's almost too good. <laughs> right? It's like nominative determinism.
1: Right. Yeah, exactly. And so Bioff was trying to get Disney artists to sign up with him. And then when the Disney folks heard about this, that's when Art Babbitt came in. And he said, no, let's block Willie Bioff. And it was Walt Disney's vice president and chief legal counsel named Gunther Lessing who said, let's form a loosely knit social group to block Willie Byoff and the IATSE. The IATSE was this and still is a big union organization. Today it's not mobster led, it's legit. At the time, it was mobster led by Willie Byoff, And basically saying that the is coming is synonymous with saying Capone is coming to run your animator. So knowing that the IATSE was out to organize Hollywood, Walt Disney's vice president, chief legal counsel named Gunther Lessing, in collaboration with Art Babbitt, who is an activist, like Art Babbitt, super activist guy. Together, they form this group called the Federation of Screen Curtainists. And then in order to sort of like build on it, they find a a lawyer. And the lawyer says, you got to call yourselves a real union. You got to get certified. So they do. And the the lawyer says, Gunther Lessing is here. He's management. You can't have management involved in a workers' union. That's way illegal. And he should know this, he says. So Gunther Lessing is no longer part of this. But he still had part in the founding, right? So now the Federation of Screen Cartoonists, they have their certification. They call themselves a union, right? Although it's just Disney artists. And they want to have a meeting with Walt. They have some demands. Union recognition. And they have this list of demands the way unions do. And there's always some negotiation. They bring it to Gunther Lessing and Gunther Lessing says, I won't have anything to do with you. They're like, what? What? They take it to Roy Disney. They're like, and Roy's like, I don't want to have anything to do with unions. Sorry. And so they're kind of dead in the water. And then over time, they see that Gunther Lessing calls them in. Walt Disney calls them in. The head of the Federation, like the four people in charge run by Art Babbitt. First, Gunther Lessing is like, I need your help to promise the cameramen a bonus that I had promised them, but I need you to deliver it to them and pretend that you gave it to them, not me. And they're like, this is such BS. And Art Babbitt's like, I won't be your stool pigeon. And they left. And then a couple months later, Walt Disney calls them all in and says, yo, there's a new union, an independent union, that all the different animation studios are doing. They're all signing up for it. MGM, the Tom and Jerry people, Warner Brothers, the Bugs Bunny people. All these animation people are signing up for this independent union, and I want you to block them, just like you blocked the buy-off union. And Art Babbitt's like, what? You want us to block the independent union? And he just left. He said, I'm done. I'm done with this. And Art Babbitt joins the independent union and spearheads a boycott of Disney through the independent union. But that's the next step of how Art Babbitt became like personally, like viscerally against the Disney company after feeling like he was used, abused, a stool pigeon and manipulated. He's now part of the independent union. And this is over the course of years, like from 1937 through 1940. So three years of feeling like you're being manipulated by the company to their whim, when you're supposed to be independent and bring rights to your fellows who were just demanding some recognition and maybe just a tiny little pay bump to equate the salary of these other studios. He was so not just pro-independent union, but he was like out to get Disney at that point. He was just a a very emotionally fueled person, just like many artists are, just like Walt himself was.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I thought there was a lot of similarity between the two in that.
1: I'm glad you thought. Where else did you see that similarity, Stephen?
0: That scene where Walt gets out of the car and he's got his fist balled up and and he's ready to go. And just he seemed to make a lot of decisions based on emotion rather than good management or even business practice. You're going, calm down. Think this through. Don't just do a knee-jerk reaction to things.
1: You know, what's very interesting is that I'm able to to give the reader a peek into the meetings that he had. Because a lot of those meetings were recorded word for word by secretaries who were of like stenographic capabilities. So they're keeping like courtroom type of notes word for word. And Walt gives this speech in February 1941 that's basically warning people, don't go to the union meetings, please. Please have sympathy for me and all the work that I've been through and all my near failures that I was able to circumvent. And the speech goes on for like 14 pages. Half the artists felt it was a sob story and half the artists felt it was genuine. Um, But gives you an idea of how divided the studio was. But it was Walt trying to kind of like appeal to their, what he calls a sense of fairness, right? That's the boss talking about a sense of fairness. It sounds kind of weird by today's standards. You know, there's a lot of books today in the self-help section, I guess, about management or how to win friends and influence people. This all came after Walt's interaction with the union. There wasn't really any code of conduct for how to manage personalities in a company. And Walt was just kind of winging it. So he was saying, please don't join this union. A lot of people ended up joining the union as a result if they hadn't been already. Fast forward to the strike being called. There's a meeting that Walt has with one of the, like someone from the local labor board and Walt just won't budge. The labor board, they're saying, listen, the union is saying they're going to have a boycott of the Disney company. And Walt's like, yeah, because you're basically like goons and you're going to use unfair tactics. And I know that because my dad was once beat up by a bunch of socialist goons, so I know how you guys were. And they're like, no, this is just the course of events. The, this is just our MO here. But what ended up happening was like a boycott did ensue. And so it kind of like confirmed Walt's suspicions that unionists, in his mind, were goons. It didn't help that Gunther Lessing, his vice president and chief legal counsel, was sort of like whispering in his ear the whole time. And you can see it in these meetings he's like reminding Walt that these people have threatened him when really it was just a bunch of like big talk that everyone's doing. Gunther Lessing, he's basically putting blinders on Walt and telling him to only read the anti-union newspapers that are published by William Randolph Hearst and to read the only the anti-union literature and, and look at the anti-union columns in the newspaper. And so Walt ends up becoming kindred spirits with one of the Big, staunch right-wing columnist named Westbrook Pegler.
0: You can't like anybody with a name like that.
1: Westbrook Pegler? I guess you can't, but he was sort of like the Bill O'Reilly Tucker Carlson of the 1930s and 40s. This guy is writing articles about how unions are all run by gangsters and communists. And what's funny is that he's not 100% wrong. There is a big gangster influence in unions. I couldn't find any communist influence in unions. And I looked, and I couldn't find gangster influence in all unions, certainly not in the Screen Cartoonist Guild, just in the IATSE at that time. So this guy Pegler, this columnist, is taking this generalization and influencing the readers of America. I think at the time there were like six million readers of his column, or maybe more, telling them that unions aren't to be trusted and they're all run by communists. You know who else was saying that unions were run by communists? Willie Baill. He's saying that the reason I'm being accused of stuff is that it's the communists they're out to get. So there's a lot of play on fear that's happening, a lot of pointing fingers, a lot of accusations, and a whole lot of polarizing that creates basically echo chambers between the different sides. And what started out in 1937 as a chance to just have a dialogue ends up being, I'm right, you're wrong, I'm good, you're evil.
0: Also, you mentioned in the book about how Merchandising happens pretty early on in the the Disney experience there. And of course, when you treat your creators as work for hire and don't give them any rights or a taste of that sweet merchandising action, I mean, you're going to get a lot of resentment for that.
1: I think they kind of expected that they weren't going to get a piece of like the Mickey Mouse watches, but they really wanted their names in the credits and
0: of the shorts of the shorts. Because it was always Walt's name that was signed big on the screen.
1: Walt's name, Walt's name. And I think after 1929, there were no other names. And they were like, there's so many of us who are working hard on this cartoon. And all these other studios are giving at least some credits to other people. And you can see that at the time, that Warner Brothers or MGM, their cartoons are crediting at least a handful of other people. But Disney Cartoons is just says Walt Disney. And they thought that was unfair. They, they just wanted their name on the credits. Like Snow White was the first time that most of these folks saw their names in in the credit. This wasn't something they negotiated for. Walt just credited everyone, which was a very chivalrous thing to do. And when I say everyone, that's excluding the inkers and painters and excluding the in betweeners and and assistants. In fact, the animators come almost last in the credits. He has like concept designers and, and, and story artists. And the story department. And then close to the end, you have a list of the animators, of which Art Babbitt is one. And at the time, Snow White had the longest running credits of any movie ever. So I think it was a great way to kind of show Hollywood the kind of endeavor that this was, how many people had to come together to make this happen. And while we're talking about the credits of Snow White, the beginning, opening credits, has a note from Walt where he kind of like, you know signs his name on a title card and he thanks his staff for their hard work and loyalty and i thought that that was very telling because this is like literally his words like he put this on screen for eternity to show people that he really values their hard work and their loyalty and that was in, in no small way what drove people to stick by Walt a lot of the time during the hardest things including the strike. He valued loyalty so much that the top artists who came back to the studio after the strike, if they had been strikers, like their names were mud. And the famous nine old men of Disney Animation were all animators who stayed loyal to Walt during the strike.
0: And while it was illegal for them to retaliate against the strikers, they found their ways.
1: Well, yeah. What specifically are you are you remembering?
0: not giving any assignments to Babbitt being chief among them.
1: Yeah, now we're fast forwarding to like what happened after the strike. The strike itself takes up a good few chapters. There's some high drama in that strike. It's not just a bunch of people picketing for nine weeks, like friendships and alliances they had ended up breaking down. People they thought they trusted, they find out are two-faced. People that they thought Disney would never align with in a million years, Disney ends up aligning with. That's all I'm going to say about that. But the strike ends up being successful. I mean, that's what I want to get at, that like this book is about people who who fought for what they believed in and they won. Like the strike won out. They became a union shop. The Disney Animation Studio to this day is a union shop. At the time, the head of the personnel department, who was very loyal to Walt, wanted to sort of perpetuate this witch hunt against the, the people who had gone on strike. And so as a result, decided to give Art Babbitt, would come back as few assignments as possible, which would, you know, necessitate a layoff. Oh, he doesn't have any work to do. We have to lay off some artists. He doesn't have anything in his inbox. Let's just lay off this guy. He has nothing to do. And so Art Babbitt was laid off a couple months after the strike ended. And he sued. He sued Walt Disney. Simultaneously, he sued Walt Disney for unpaid bonuses. So he sued Walt Disney twice. At the same time, I mean, what guts on this guy? The case where he sued for being fired, that court case is retained in its completion in the San Francisco National Archives. And that became a big resource for me. It's like 1,500 pages of courtroom testimony, of evidence, of preserved conversations that secretaries had written word for word, of notes from within the Disney studio. Just like. A King Tut's tomb trove for a Disney historian. And so that became like one of the main backbones of my research.
0: So when you see that big stack of stuff, whether it be literally or figuratively on a hard drive, how much is excitement and how much is going, whew, there's a lot of work to be done?
1: All of it's excitement. All of it. I knew that I would make time. I annotated this 1,500-page document over like three different continents, on plane rides, in airports, in tuk-tuks, in shuttles, like wherever I was going, I had my laptop. Whenever we were on the road or, or I was going from one place to another, from like Asia, through the Middle East, through Europe, and across this country, I had the, this laptop and I was I was working on this, just annotating everything, under trying my best to understand something. If there's a reference in there that I didn't get, I would research the reference. If they're talking about something that I didn't quite understand, I would figure out, what are they talking about? What news article are they referring to? What celebrity are they talking about? At one point, the judge references Westbrook Pegler. And that might have been the first time I saw the name. I was like, oh, who is this guy? Flash forward to now when we all know, and by we all, it's me and anyone who reads the book, (laughs) knows that Westbrook Pegler is the Bill O'Reilly of 1939.
0: So what was your favorite rabbit hole that you went down that didn't actually make it into the book?
1: Oh, that's such a great question. There are a good few bits that didn't make it into the book because my editor told me I had to trim a lot away. The book was going to be about 50% longer. Right now, the text clocks in at about 80,000 words, and the original was like 120,000 words. I had to just like, as they say, like, say what needs to be said and nothing else. So I had to kind of keep that in mind. This is the story about the strike, 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 strike. This isn't relevant to the strike or what led up to the strike. It has to be stripped. And so it was a painful experience to kill my darlings. You know, one of my rabbit holes was I was digging through old magazines from 1931, 1932, right when Mickey Mouse had become a household name. There aren't a lot of interviews with Walt Disney before because he was just sort of growing in his fame. But once Mickey Mouse was a household name, you have like Mickey Mouse clubs all over the country. Mickey Mouse gets an honorary Oscar. And by 1933, people are celebrating his fifth birthday, the fifth birthday of Mickey Mouse. And I thought that that was really interesting. And Walt gets interviewed a lot in 32, 33 about Mickey Mouse. What I found was that now at the time he's, 31 years old, 31 year old Walt Disney has a very different origin story about Mickey Mouse than 60 year old Walt Disney, who has, with the air of a storyteller, tells about how he was on the train home from New York and how he drew pictures of Mickey Mouse on an envelope. But 31 year old Walt, it was a little bit different. And I just wanted to include that, but I had to strike it because it didn't have anything to do
0: with the strike.
1: With the strike. Yeah, sorry about that double-meaning pun.
0: (laughs) So you have another book about Disney animation coming up in just a couple of months. How did that work out like that?
1: Oh, you're you're referring to the Disney Afternoon book? Yeah. I'm so glad you mentioned that because I have to bring you disappointing
0: news, Stephen. Uh, It's been delayed again?
1: It's delayed. It's delayed again. The good news is it's not canceled, but I was told that it's not going to be released this year. It's still in the forthcoming stage, so if you can bear with Disney editions,
0: because it's been like three years since it's originally supposed to come out, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, and believe me, I wanted out as much as the next person. I started the Disney Afternoon book in I think 2018, and went out, researched, interviewed, met some really cool people. All the people that a child of the '80s or '90s would hope to meet who shaped their favorite cartoons, spoke with every one of them, some of whom have passed since then. And the book was written, and we were on the first round of edits when COVID happened, and and that put just a stoppage on everything. And the Disney editions branch of the company, the publishing branch, is sort of like, you know, figuring stuff out right now. And my book
0: is not the only book that's been delayed. So this isn't revenge for writing about Walt Disney and not the greatest light in in this book?
1: I have no indication to think that it's revenge for writing about this book. Actually, I was in touch with the Disney company about this book every step of the way, about my book, The Disney Revolt, every step of the way. And I even sent them a copy of the manuscript. I wanted to keep everything above board. I asked them for image rights to use pictures in the book. Unfortunately, I, I didn't hear back from them. So I couldn't use any pictures of Goofy or the Snow White Queen or Geppetto. I could only use images that were fair use and I didn't want to overload it with like iconic Disney characters either. I just wanted to keep it like a fun narrative read, but also a piece of like scholarly work.
0: Those picket signs were fun though.
1: Oh yeah. You know, I let them know that the cover was going to have this picket sign of Donald Duck on it. Again, everything above board. But I was told by my publisher that this is all fair use and it's going to be actually a lot of these pictures or pictures like it, are available in library archives and have been through internet connection for years. I mean, you can find high-res pictures all over in different university archives online. The one on the cover is from Art Babbitt's personal collection, and I i should probably say this. I had the, the very good fortune of working with Art Babbitt's widow until she died in 2008 until just a few years ago, and I was going to their house flying out from where I live in New York to Los Angeles to Hollywood to just like dig through all of her files. And she kept everything in her house, a sizable house, not a mansion, but it was like a regular house, home movies, his letters, all these things from, from Disney, like ID cards and photos, documents and passports and diaries. Like she saved everything, even stuff from the twenties. She saved an old business card that he had which is in the books, reprinted in the book, his 1920s business card. So that was such a treat and such a privilege. It really gave me a chance to understand who Art Babbitt was that no other experience could have. I really felt like I could get into his mind when I was digging through his stuff and seeing the treasures that he left behind.
0: So when you wrap up a big project like this, do you have kind of a a postpartum depression for the writer?
1: A little bit, a little bit. (laughs) next question.
0: (laughs) So how does your partner deal with you when you're, you're going through this depression?
1: Oh, she's been so supportive. I mean, she deserves the first word and the last word in the book and she gets it. She's been the background noise. If you heard anything in this interview is her just like coming in and putting stuff down and leaving. And she knows that this is very important to me. I've been on this project on and off really, for 14 years and mostly on so, like, it went through my entire 30s, and now I'm in the dawn of my 40s. So she knows that, like, I've had a relationship with this book longer than I have with most people that I know. And she is so kind and generous and, and respects that. And my hope for everyone is that they themselves have people in their lives who are as supportive of their creative projects as Anya is for mine.
0: And hopefully you return the favor and give her as much support as she needs for hers as well.
1: I do my best and do my best. It's very special when someone sees your excitement. She's not an animation aficionado. She's a scientist. Go figure, right? But she understands the value of research and she understands that sometimes things take a long time to find their conclusion and for the puzzle pieces to fit together. So I kind of see the Disney revolt as investigative journalism, also a psychological study. I don't overload the reader with that, but I do want to introduce the minds of the people involved, Walt Disney and Art babbitt and I want the reader to draw their own conclusion. And Anya, she gets that. She gets that there's always something beneath the surface. Like anything of value, you have to look a little bit deeper. The Disney... Revolt tells the story of the strike beyond just any surface idea of good versus evil. It tells the story of people, tells the story of drive and motivation, why people fought for what they believed in, what was going on in the world, what was going on in their lives, and how all of that came to fruition.
0: And it's so interesting because Walt had his emphasis on personality and art did those psychological studies on Goofy. So much what they did with their art, you did with this book.
1: Yeah. You know, Art Babbitt was, he loved psychology even as a kid. And he had aspirations to be a psychologist or at least study psychology. And instead he went into art. But that might explain why he was really into method acting and getting into like character profiles and character analyses. And I did exactly that. I wanted to get inside Art Babbitt's head the way he got into Goofy's head. But the more I was learning about Art Babbitt, the more I began to understand him and see myself as a watered-down version of him. Like, he's a reader and he appreciates psychology. So do I. He was an educator and obsessed with teaching. So do I. I'm obsessed with teacher and I'm an educator. He was an animator. So was I. I worked animation for a good decade. And he's an activist. And so am I. I feel like he's the ultra version of everything that I identify myself by. He just did everything to a higher degree. And I kind of admire him for that. And I I kind of lament that because he was so extreme in everything, he let his emotions control his actions so much at the time.
0: So what you're saying is Walton Gunther Lessing didn't have a chance in this book. (laughs) <laughs> being silly, being silly.
1: <laughs> you know, I look at it and I and I just keep looking at the course of events and I'm like, I just wish everyone just calmed down at the beginning. It would have made a much less interesting story, but it would have avoided a lot of heartbreak for those actual people. But who would want to read about that?
0: <laughs> so are you able to share what you're working on next right now or do you need to keep that secret?
1: I have to keep that secret, but. Thanks so much for asking, stay tuned. And again, the Disney Afternoon book, it's still in there, it's still in the tubes, still in the tubes and I'm going to be making sure that it's going to be the best book that everyone imagines it must be. We started the Disney Afternoon book, I pitched it right when the DuckTales reboot was announced and it was supposed to come out at the same time as as the DuckTales reboot. And as the Disney Afternoon (laughs) reboots, being announced, like the Chip and Dale movie, which is awesome, and this new Darkwing Duck thing. I'm just doing my best to let people know that we haven't forgotten about you. I'm one of you. We are, we are doing our best here, and I want this out as much as anybody.
0: Well, Jake S. Friedman, I want to thank you so much for sharing the Disney Revolt with us. It's been a, a fabulous conversation, and thanks for all your hard work and all your creative talent.
1: So great being on your show. Thanks for your interest in having me on.
0: Jake S. Friedman is the author of The Disney Revolt, The Great Labor War of Animation's Golden Age, which is published by Chicago Review Press. I'm Stephen Usry, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is produced in the studios of FM 89.3 WYPL Memphis, a service of the Memphis Public Library, a division of the City of Memphis. Book Talk is copyrighted by the Memphis Public Library, all rights reserved.